And so we talked about what it looks like for two people, a man and a woman, to come together in what we call marriage. And we talked about the institution of marriage, how a man uh, can, can foster a healthy relationship with his wife, how a wife can foster a healthy relationship with their, with their husband. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to continue that conversation, but we're going to broaden it to any and everybody. What does it look like for you and for me to build a community of people out of which we can foster and grow meaningful relationships with people so that when we go through the tough times in life, there's someone there with us? What does it look like for us to foster meaningful relationships with people for the glory of God, where he and his image is coming out of us into the relationships around us? So number one, friendship isn't optional, it's essential. Friendship isn't optional, it is absolutely essential. It is necessary because we're relational beings. I wanna give you some stats that prove this point. When you look at Gen Zs or millennials, millennials are my generation, Gen Zs is the one right after us. When you look at these two generations and they've, they've thrown out surveys to these people, to these young people, what they found is in Generation Z, nearly 79% of these young people say that they're in a state of loneliness, that they lack that meaningful relationship. They have a lot of acquaintances, but they lack that meaningful relationship, whether it be romantic or whether it just be that solid friend that they can hang their hat on, that they know they can trust and they can depend on. 79% of them say they don't have that. 71% of millennials, this is three out of four of us, say they do not have a meaningful relationship that basically goes past the surface level. Whether that be in their marriage, whether that be outside of their marriage, whether that be with a coworker, they, whatever it is, 71% of millennials, my generation, are lacking in a deep, meaningful friendship with another person. And so even when we look at the baby boomers, over 50%, I think the, the, the stat was 58% of baby boomers are lonely. 28% of people who are older are living by themselves right now. So those are the stats on loneliness, but loneliness, it's not just a stat. Loneliness is very personal and it actually affects your health. Okay, I, I mentioned earlier 28% of older people will live by themselves, but these are the effects of social isolation. Loneliness is more dangerous than obesity and is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Write that down, 15 cigarettes a day. That's what it looks like on your body when you live in isolation from other people. It affects your mental health and it literally will affect your physical health. Poor social relationships were associated with a 29% increase in risk of coronary heart disease and a 32% rise in the risk of stroke. This is what the studies have shown. And in people who are senior citizens, there's a 45% risk of mortality among seniors that are lonely. So what contributes to loneliness? I just shared with you all the statistics and maybe in your mind you're taking an inventory of your relationship saying, is that me? Am I that person that doesn't have those meaningful relationships that I'm searching for, that my heart yearns for, that this thing that God has created me for, I'm lacking and so I feel it? Maybe that's you in this room, but what are the major causes of loneliness in our society? The first one is this, especially for Gen Z and millennials, social media. 
Write that down, put it in caps, circle it 10 times. The main cause of loneliness for the younger generations has direct linkages to social media. It has direct linkages to technology. And what we were sold when we started Facebook is we were sold this image of ourselves that we can go into this digital world and we can invest into relationships there. We can become popular. We can become known. If I just take the right selfie of myself, if I take this hunk of hunk of face and I put it on the internet, then people are going to see that and they're going to be like, man, this guy's cool. And they're going to want to be my friend. And so in one form of another, whether it be through dating sites, whether it be through things like Tinder, Snapchat, or MySpace, if you're really old, right? Whether it be through any of those avenues, we had this idea that if we had a social presence out there on the internet, that would also raise our well-being. It would make us happier. It would make us wholer. We would have more friends. We could build more relationships. But the reality these studies are finding is that the exact opposite is happening. Our presence on social media is rising. Our Instagram followers are rising. Our Facebook friends are growing. All the while, young people are growing lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. Instead of having and taking part of this social experiment that would broaden their horizon, it's only, it's only caused us to isolate ourselves further and further from the meaningful relationships that God designed us for. So parents, I want to speak to you right now because you're the gatekeeper of your children's mind. What does social media look like in your family? You know, I just had, uh, excuse me, my wife just had our third child, uh, little Peter Ray, uh, he's adorable. He's cute. Um, you know, I was telling first service, my wife has had three kids, and she looks fantastic. I've had zero kids and went golfing with the pastors a week ago, and my first swing, the button of my pants just shot off, right? Not fair, okay? Uh, but we have this third kid, and so it's brought us back to the stage of changing diapers. And if you know anything about children, and if you know my son, he absolutely despises it when I change his diaper. So we'll put a clean diaper on him, he's happy, right? But then all of a sudden he fills said diaper, okay? And it begins to smell and it's getting squishy and things are getting weird. And so he gets a little fussy, he's getting a little irritated. And so what do you do? You change the diaper. Well, he hates it. I mean, he loathes changing the diaper. Changing a diaper on little Peter Ray is like chasing a little pig uh, right around uh, uh, the barnyard, right? It's just, he squeals, and he's all over the place, right? And you're trying to change his diaper, but you gotta be careful, because now it's a boy. I have two girls, right? Like, it's just, it's getting chaotic. And he hates it, and he screams louder, and he screams harder. But once we're done changing that diaper, all of a sudden things get better. What I would submit to you is that exposure to social media, exposure to technology, exposure to the iPad, exposure to the iPhone or the telephone, whatever it is that gives your kid access to these things is a lot like a diaper. In some cases, they're necessary, right? In some cases, you have to have a phone because you need to stay connected to them. You want to know the things that they're doing. When you're on a long trip, we're about ready to go to Oregon. You betcha my phone is going to be used to help keep them calm in the back seat. You betcha my laptop is going to be out playing them movies because we got to be able to make it to Portland, Oregon sanely, right? But it's a lot like a dirty diaper. After a while, it gets a little poopy. 
After a while, it takes them down a path where they get more and more irritable. And because they're your children, you as the parent have to make that stand and draw that line and say, hey, we're not going to let our kid use technology. We're going to let them use it for this long. But after that, we're drawing a boundary no more. Our kid can use social media, but we're going to have access to every little bit of it, right, especially if they're younger. But you have to draw these boundary markers in your life and with your kid's life because if you don't, what's going to happen? In their young, impressionable minds, they're going to think, if I have a presence on social media, if I use my phones like the other kids, that's going to raise my well-being. And you know that that's not the case. It's going to make it more difficult for them. It's going to make their life harder. It's going to be harder for them to interact with real people. And instead of going and playing t-ball, they're sitting in your living room on a phone. Instead of being outside playing on a playground, they're stuck in front of their iPad watching the latest YouTube video. What boundaries are you setting for your family and for your children to set them up for the future so that when they're old and they're the same age as the Gen Zers and they're the same age as the millennials now, they're not a statistic that looks and says, I don't have that meaningful relationship. Because the only way I know how to build, build it is by putting this fake image of myself out and hoping people bite and become my friends. You are the gatekeeper of your child. What are you doing to establish boundaries with things like social media? Your kids will hate it. But if you don't change something, guess what? The problem will only get worse. What are the boundary lines that you draw for your kids and you draw even for yourself? I want to summarize it this way. Instead of our relationships going deep and becoming fruitful, because of social media, they stay surfacy and go no further than simple acquaintances masquerading as deep friendships. All the while, we fool ourselves into deeper and deeper loneliness and depression. So social media is a cause of loneliness. The next one I would say is singleness. Now, God can do great things through singleness. We look at the life of Christ. He was a single man. You look at the life of Paul. He was an older man who was a widower, and so he didn't have a wife anymore. She had passed away, and he did great things for the kingdom of God. He used his singleness in ways that were powerful, in ways that maybe the normal person looks at and says, man, how does he do these things for God? He used his singleness in a fantastic way, but in our society, singleness can be one of those things that creates and breathes loneliness in our life. And this speaks to almost all generations. You see it in young people who are in high school and who are in college. They're striving after the attention of their peers and willing to do almost anything to get it. We see this in people who are uh, going to college and they're looking for that spouse and maybe they've been rejected time and time again and so it's pushed them to a position where they're no longer casting their nets but they're saying, you know what, this isn't really for me. Or maybe they're, they're beyond those years and, and now they're, they're the, the late 20s, early 30s and they're still single and they're still lonely and they're wondering, is that person there? They're wondering, Lord, is this what you have for me in my life? Am I called to walk the road of Christ in a literal way with my singleness? We see this in people that are a little bit older and maybe they've lost a spouse. Or maybe they're separated and now they're in their early 40s, late 40s, and they're trying to figure out this new way of life where they had someone before that was everything to them, but whether through death or separation, they're no longer there. Loneliness doesn't just come from social media. Loneliness comes from the everyday stuff of life that we get caught up in, that happens, that we can't always avoid. 
So whether it's through social media or whether it's through the stuff of life, there are so many people, even in this room, people who are married, people who are single, who are dealing with loneliness. And it's affecting your physical health, it's affecting your mental health. And so this morning, we're gonna jump into what it looks like to deal with it, what it, what it looks like to build rela- relationships and friendships God's way. Friendship is in low supply but high demand. So the question I wanna ask you, who is your friend? This morning, who is your friend? If you're, if you're married, you can say your spouse, my wife is my best friend 100 times over, but outside, even of that intimate relationship, who is your friend? Who's that person that you invest deeply into? What does biblical friendship look like? Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18, verse one, we're gonna have it on the screen for you. We're gonna look at this simple verse and we're gonna draw out of it something that I think is powerful and will help us move forward in biblical friendships. Now this scene, as we, as we read the text, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. As we come on this scene where this verse is given, we see David, the man who would one day become king, He's this, he's this young pup. He's this young guy, and he's got all this ambition. He's got all this faith. He fights Goliath with a slingshot. He slays the giant. He frees the people of Israel, and everyone is in shock and awe. Wow, this David, he really is something. This David sure has a lot of faith. This David really is strong, and he's a great marksman. And Jonathan sees David, and he sees something in David that he's like, I want to be like that guy. He sees David come to town as the humble warrior who's like the caveman with the head of Goliath and he's grunting, right, and he's spitting and he's showing the world, look what, I, look what God has achieved through me, right? And Jonathan sees that and he says, I wanna be like that guy. And so Jonathan begins to build a relationship with David. It says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own Soul. Now, in our cultural context, with everything that's happening in, in the media, with everything that's happening in our world, guys, how many of you read this verse and you get automatically uncomfortable? You're like, ew. Like, this is strange to me. I don't, like, boy, knitting your soul to another man, like, that seems weird. But what we have to understand, that what's going on here, there is nothing strange or there's nothing weird about it. There's nothing unnatural. This is a godly relationship between two men. And what it speaks to us guys, because it's harder for us to do this than the ladies, what it speaks to you and me is that we can have a relationship with someone outside of our spouse or our future spouse where we can be knit together with them and they're there for us in the midst of all of life's troubles and all of life's heartaches. They're there in the good times and the bad times. We see this with David and Jonathan. They have this deep, intimate relationship where there's emotional security. There's vulnerability. These guys know everything about each other. They don't hold anything back. And they have this amazing, godly relationship where they're holding each other up. They have a relationship where when they go to battle and they fight in wars, they come back and they tell the stories together. They can be there for one another as they're dealing with the PTSD. 
They can be there for one another when they're dealing with the hardships of life or the loss of a family member. There's something about their relationship that is so deep that it knits them together. That Hebrew word for knit, the best way I can think of to describe it, think of like two people or a group of people that are intimate, they're close to one another, they're sharing in life, they're doing life together, and there's a rubber band that surrounds them. And as people live their life, they're going to go different ways, and there's going to be hardship, and there's going to be heartbreak, and all these different things, but there's this rubber band that always brings them back together. There's that emotional support that's there. There's that strength in numbers that comes because they've been knit together. This is not the same thing as marriage. Two become one. Here we're seeing people knit together. We're seeing these two guys come and have this healthy, godly relationship where they can go deep together and there's security and there's power in the relationship. Every man, every woman needs a relationship like this. We need a relationship like this that goes beyond, right, just the marital covenant we've made with our wife. I need people in my life that I can lean on and support. My wife has two friends in Japan. I would say she's knit together. Their souls are connected. She has a friend in Japan and another one that lives in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and once a week they get together and they do a video call, and they're just there for each other. They love each other. They're there helping each other through the things of life. And so I think in my own story, you know, this is something that's difficult for me to do. In fact, I had a relationship with somebody where I had that friendship and then they moved away. And you know what? I found out that that really hurt. When, when a friend moves away, when that rubber band gets stretched, there's a pain that comes with it. There's a sorrow that comes with it. Why? Because I was created to have relationship with that person. But God has designed us this way and he has made us this way so that, so that we would find fulfillment in the community around us. This is what true friendship looks like. True friendship is not a dime a dozen. These are not people that you come across all the time. There's not 10 Jonathans for David out there. There's not 10 Davids for Jonathan out there. These are people that there's not very many of them. And in fact, research has shown that the human brain is only capable of having five meaningful relationships in their life. That's deep. We have a lot of friends. We have a lot of acquaintances. But there's not a lot of deep, meaningful relationships that we can actually handle. And when we look at the life of Christ, he's no different. Jesus will have these moments where, where he'll speak to the 5,000, he'll have the masses eating from his hand, and he's building relationships with them, but those relationships are very surfacey. And as his circle gets smaller, we see that there's this group of 70 disciples that Jesus is going to teach and actually train on what it looks like to go out and spread the kingdom of God into the world. And he's going to send them to different towns. He's going to send them to prepare the way for his ministry. So he's got a relationship with these guys where he's teaching and he's leading. But then we get even smaller where he's leading his 12 disciples these 12 men that are following after him that he's sharing life with, he's breaking bread with, he, he's sharing meals with, he's living life, he's sleeping next to, like this guy is sharing life with these 12. But even beyond that, there's the three, Peter, James, and John. Even Jesus had three intimate relationships with people that could hold him up, that could support him, that could be there for him, but also that he could shape that he could be a part of their life as well. 
They're going to see things that the other apostles aren't going to see. They're going to experience things that the other apostles aren't going to experience. In fact, John, the disciple John, in the Gospel of John, you know how he refers to himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. And he actually portrays himself at the Last Supper uh, laying next to Jesus because that was the cultural norm of the day. He's laying next to Jesus and his head is resting upon his chest. And he's showing this is my relationship with Christ. This is who I am. And it's not weird. It's not strange, but it's powerful. There's something in that person that liberates something in me. This is the pattern of Jesus. The second point I want to give to you this morning is in order to be known, we must learn to know. So I want to give you three principles for knowing. The first one is slow down. If you want to build relationships with people, what you first must do is slow down your life. You must reprioritize the things that matter. There's a pastor in in Portland, Oregon, who I've always appreciated. His name is John Mark Comer. And when talking about time and this idea of slowing down, He says, oftentimes what we say to ourselves when it comes to our schedule and our time is, is if I just had more time. How many of you have said that before? If I had more time, then I would spend it with my kids. If I had more time, then I would build more meaningful relationships. If I had more time, man, if I could just get more time, I would probably read my Bible more. I would would invest more into my relationship with Christ, but things are just so hectic in my life, I just can't do it. If I just had more time, and what this pastor says, and I think it's 100% true, what we do in America, what we do in Western culture, is we look at time, we say, if we have more, then we'll do it, but the reality is, if you have more time, what will you actually do? You'll just fill it with more stuff. You don't need more time. You don't need more time. What you have to do is redeem the time that God has given to you. And for all of us, it looks like us slowing down, slowing down from the high pace of life, slowing down from where you're working 70, 80, 90 hours a week, but you haven't been able to build those deep, meaningful relationships. Can I tell you something? That work will kill you. Do you know why? Because you'll go into deeper and deeper isolation and we're back to step one. What does isolation create? It literally can create heart problems. It can give you pressure that could one day manifest itself in a stroke. It can literally bring pain to your life. What are you doing to slow down the pace of your life so you can invest into the relationships that matter? So you as a father or a mother can invest into the relationships with your children. So you can invest into the people that are around you. What does it look like for you to slow down? It also means making the most of where you're at. Making the most of where you're at. When you go to work, can you stand your coworkers? Have you built a wall between you and them where it says, look, we're just gonna stay service level friends. We're not gonna go any deeper than that. Are you inviting people into your home? Are you opening yourself to others to come in and enjoy the life that you have? The second one I wanna give to you is learn names. This is so simple, this is so basic, but it's so true. When you learn someone's name, here's what you're doing. You're telling them they matter to you. You're looking them in the eye and you're saying, my name is Micah, what's your name? You're stepping across what I call the awkward line and you're engaging in a relationship with someone that you don't have to. How many people do you sit around right now, right, don't look around because that's awkward, but how many people do you sit around right now here in church at New Life Fellowship where we are one family, 
How many people in the rows in front of you and behind you, how many people do you not know their names? You've come to church week after week, you sit in your spot, you see the same people, but you still don't know what their name is. I'm gonna give you a challenge. After the service, I want you to, I want you to meet one person and learn their name. I want you to say, hey, I am so-and-so. What's your name? And it's gonna be a little awkward and it's gonna be a little uncomfortable, but I don't care, all right? That's your challenge today. It's learning people's names. And part of this means you have to cast a big net. If you wanna grow in relationships with people, if you wanna grow in relationships with those around you, you have to be willing to cast a big net. You have to be willing to go outside your comfort zone and build relationships with people you wouldn't otherwise build with. Researchers say that people will develop hundreds of relationships in their life. They're constantly casting the net. They're constantly throwing the net out and building relationships with people. And the reality is only two or three of those hundreds of people that you build a relationship will stick. Have you found those relationships that stick? And if you haven't, have you stopped casting the net because you're too busy or because it makes you uncomfortable? We have to cast the net, but we have to do it in the right spot. Right, if you're looking to build a relationship with someone, the best place you can cast your net, right here at church. Meet the person around you. The worst place you can cast the net, just being really blunt and honest, is going down to the bar, right? If you're looking for a spouse and you go to the bar, I can almost guarantee you 90% of the time what's gonna happen. If you go to church, you know, I, I would like to guarantee this, but you, I can guarantee what will happen 90% of the time. You come to church, hopefully you'll meet a godly person that's on the same trajectory as you. You go to the bar, you're gonna meet someone who's not so godly. They may not even remember your name or anything that you said because they're hammered, right? Like, like that's just the reality. So where you cast your net, it matters. We got this lady who goes downtown. Her name is Sally. She moved here from Minnesota. She's a single lady. Uh, she's just absolutely fantastic. She's basically giving me permission to talk about her anytime I want because um, her story is just so powerful, so unique. But what I love about Sally is one of the first times she came downtown was for the Harvest Festival, right? And it was crazy. We do it here at the North Campus too, and it's crazy all the time. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? She jumped in. She oversaw one of the inflatables that the kids were jumping on, right? And it was crazy. It was hectic. But she jumped in, and she said, where can I help out? She's, she served right away. She got involved with our starting point team who their sole job is to learn names of people so that when someone walks through the door, they can say, hey, so-and-so, it's great to see you again. We want people to feel like they matter. And she's jumped on that team and she's making a difference in people's lives. We had, we had this young guy who's a millennial and he's looking for community, he's looking for connection and he brings her this giant potted plant. It is beautiful. And he just gives it to her just to thank her for being who she is because she matters to him. She came from Minnesota not knowing hardly anybody. And she's already building these relationships. Well, she had an accident at work the other day and, and it caused her to basically be stuck in her house. She can move along, around with a walker a little bit. But now all of a sudden, because she kept casting her net, right? all these people are stepping up and they're saying, hey, we wanna bring you a meal. Hey, we want to come and clean your house for you. She's a fantastic lady. She's the only lady I know that can pull off. She's got a five-foot pink flamingo, right? Floyd the flamingo, right in the middle of her living room. She's the only lady I know who can pull that off, okay? And she's like, if you got a flamingo in your living room, I'm sorry, but Sally pulls it off better, okay? But, but this is who she is. 
She cast a big net and all of a sudden those relationships that she's built have begun to narrow down and these people are stepping up and they're saying, I want to take care of Sally. I want to make sure that her house is clean. I want to make sure that there is food for her in a refrigerator so she doesn't have to go to the store. I'm going to take that burden on myself. And I love, I love that we get to support her in that way. Where are you casting your net? The last principle I want to give you is sharing life. You gotta slow down, learn names, and then you have to share life with one another. You have to share life with one another. David and Jonathan, they shared life with each other. They knew each other deeply. They knew the ins and outs of their life. It wasn't something that they kept separate from each other, but they knew one another. I went to the Dakota Prairie Museum. How many of you have been to the Dakota Prairie Museum? It's just right here on Main Street, okay? Pretty cool museum. But this last month, they've had an exhibit in there talking about the porch. If you go down North Main Street, you go down the historic district by where the old library or family dental is now, you're going to see all these old homes ranging from anywhere from 80 to like 120 years old. It's crazy. They're, They're huge homes. But one of the things you notice almost immediately with every one of these older homes is they have this gigantic porch stretching across most of the front. Some of them even have this wraparound porch that goes to the side, right? They're these big, beautiful homes that have these gigantic porches. And the reason they had these porches back in the day is because, number one, they had no air conditioning. And so this would have been probably the cooler, coolest part of the home. But the porch was considered the social outlook for, outlet for people to go and enjoy and build relationships with their neighbors, Life happened out in front of you. Your kids played out in the front yards. Your kids got on their bike and they went down to the, you know, the baseball diamond to play t-ball together. They went and ran through the sprinklers out in the front yard. Everything happened in front of you. You would see on a cool day, you'd see people from your neighborhood sitting out, walking to each other's houses, talking, playing checkers or chess, engaging in these relationships, getting to know who everybody was for a, a blanket of safety, but also because they were designed to build these relationships. The the word porch comes from the Latin portico, which literally means portal. The porch was considered a portal from the public life to the private life. And when that portal was open, relationships were being made. You look at these old homes, we got a walk-in one uh, just last week. We, We bought this table from a guy and it was this beautiful home that was probably 110 years old. And you walk into this entry room, and the next room is this big, beautiful dining room, spacious, plenty of room for people to come and fill in the chairs where life would happen. And then you'd walk across, and there's this big, beautiful living room with no TV in it where people would hang out. They would play games together. They would talk about life and their kids and school and different things, but they would all come in off the porch and enter through the portal of this home where relationships would grow deeper. What happened? When you look at your own home, I, th- I, I, just, I told this the first service, when I look at my house, I live in a ranch-style home, you know, about 1,200 square feet up top, same thing in the basement, right? There's no porch. What happened over time is we introduced technology, we introduced TVs into our home, we introduced entertainment into our home that we, didn't, we no longer needed people from the outside, and so the home became more of this internal refuge that we retreated to to get away from the world. 
Now the home centers around a living room and how big of a TV you have in that living room and, and what's the newest game system that's hooked up. Is it the PS5 or, or the Xbox One or whatever the new thing is, right? All of a sudden now your home is defined by the size of a screen and a console rather than the relationships that are built inside of it. The home has become a refuge for us to escape the world, not a portal by which we interact with the world. So when I say share life, what I mean is, who is it that you're inviting to enter the portal of your life? Who is it you're inviting to sit down at that dinner table that maybe you need to clean off now so you can have space for guests? Who is that person that is entering your porch, spending time with you and letting the roots of their life grow in conjunction with the roots of your life? Who is it you're investing into and who's investing into you? Who is entering the portal of your life? Here's the reality of porches today. If you know someone with a porch, especially if it's closed in, what happens? What happens to that porch? They usually don't sit in it because now it's hot and we have air conditioners. But now porches are filled with stuff. You guys ever walked into someone's house and the porch is just full they're like, man, what do we do with this space? We're not really using it, so hey, let's store a bunch of stuff in there. And some of it they use, and most of it they'll never use again. The reality of our life with relationships is a lot of times we have a porch, but it's full of stuff. We have a portal to a life, our life that, that we walk in and out of and we go to the public world, but when we come home, we shut the door and we keep all of that outside. How many of you know the names of your neighbors? How many of you know the person that lives two houses down or two doors down from you? If you live on Northern's campus, how many of you know the person across the hall? The reality is we go home to seclude ourselves and isolate ourselves from life, but the reality is the way God designed things is we, are, we have this portal to our soul that we open and close, and when we want people to come in, we open, and when we don't, we close. God wants us to live life in front of us. He wants us to look out and see all the things that are happening because he's designed us to be a part of it. The kingdom of God doesn't just happen in your living room. It happens outside. It happens in your dining room, in your living room. It happens at the table. It happens uh, out to lunch with somebody. It happens in life. Are you sharing life with people? The last point I want to give to you is freedom comes from friendship. A little hot in here, huh? Whew. Just think, in a little bit, we're gonna be done, and then you can go outside where it's even hotter, all right? Freedom comes from friendship. There's this beautiful text in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a deeply theological text. It's a debated text. It's, it's, it's one of the most powerful texts, I think, in the book of Corinthians. And here's what it says. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly but then, when Christ returns, we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, we're not going to get into the weeds of this text, but the one thing that we're going to hunker down on is that when Christ returns, look at that last phrase, even as I have been fully known. It means there's something about me that God knows. He knows everything. And one day, I'm going to wake up to the reality that he knows I'm gonna know God deeper, but I'm gonna be fully known by him. 
And there's a freedom that Paul sees in that reality. He's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about how people function within the church, what's necessary, what's not necessary, the things that we have that will one day pass away. But the thing that anchors Paul is that God will know who he is. And what scholars say is that Paul, the great missionary of the early church, is drawing this from an ancient story stretching all the way back to Exodus 33, where Moses, the savior of the Israelites, he's led them from captivity and he's leading them to the promised land. He's up on Mount Sinai getting the laws. The people are terrified because there's thunder and there's lightning and, and he's talking with God. He's talking with God and God says to Moses, he sees his faith. And the Lord's going to say to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, your desire to lead my people into freedom, this desire that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. God's looking at Moses and saying, Moses, there's this deep, intimate relationship we have built. You've put your faith and your trust in me, and I have come to know you by name. There's freedom that comes from friendship. Here's the reality. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, here's what God had to do. He literally had to cover his face. He said Mo Moses wanted to see God. He wanted to see him face to face. He wanted this relationship with God so badly. And God was basically like, Moses, you are a sinful man. You are unrighteous. And so what we gotta do is we gotta cover your face and I'm gonna walk by you. Do not look upon my face or you will die. I'm gonna let you see my back, but you can't see my face, otherwise you're gonna die. But I'm gonna give you an access to my presence that nobody has had before since Adam and Eve. And so Moses has to hide his face and God walks past him. But what, what God is hinting at is a person who is unrighteous, who doesn't deserve his favor or his grace or his mercy, that person is known by God. Here's the reality of your story and my story. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've each gone our own way. The wages of our sin is death. There's unrighteousness and impurity in our heart, and because of that, we, we have moved away from a relationship with God where we know him and he knows us. We can see him face to face. That's no longer a possibility. But what we see is that God still knows your name and he knows my name because you matter and I matter to him. Here's what Jesus did. He went and he died on the cross for you and me. He took our nakedness, he took our shame, he took our loneliness. There is no story that describes a lonelier death than that which Jesus died. Jesus was rejected by the social structure. Jesus was rejected even by his friends. They, they basically ran away when it came time to stand up for him. But even beyond that, he was rejected by the Father. My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus died the loneliest death possible. Why? Because he wanted your name. Because he cared about who you were. Because he wanted you to move from death to life. Because he loved you enough to lay down his life for you. And what he asks in return is for you to come to him in faith and repentance saying, God, forgive me of the sins that I have committed. I'm putting my faith and my trust in you. I'm not living my way anymore. I'm living for you. I'm not living for my kingdom. I'm living for yours. 
I'm not living just for my relationship, I'm living for yours. When you get the relationship with Christ, right, it opens the doors for you to have healthy relationships with other people. Do you know this Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you uh, for the world in which we live, that you created us to have relationships. Lord, let us be a people that actively foster relationships with one another. Lord, we thank you for things like life groups. We thank you for services like this where we can build those relationships. We thank you for what's gonna happen next week uh, with just the, the barnyard party, the block party that's happening, Lord. Let these be moments where we can build relationships with other people, Lord. But Lord, even before all of that, remind us that you know our name. Remind us that you care about us so much that you would lay your life down for us and you would call us to repentance so that we can have relationship with you again. Jesus, we love you and we thank you that even in the midst of the heat, Lord, we can enjoy your presence and we can learn your scriptures. We pray this in your name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.